Uh, no doubt you've heard the story. Tuesday afternoon, a group of students from Elam Christian College were uh, on an outdoor education camp down in Tongariro National Park at the Sir Edmund Hillary Outdoor Pursuit Centre. A group of 12 were on a canyoning expedition working their way up the Mangatapopo Gorge, abseiling up the dam and climbing over rocks and so on, when the Mangatapopo stream or river flash flooded. Uh, five of the students managed to scramble to safety and seven or six students and their teacher uh, lost their lives. Just an absolute devastation for the families of those students and their teacher uh, who were killed in that event and obviously the ramifications for Elam Christian College uh, just sent into a state of shock and, and reeling from a tragedy like that for the broader Christian community. Uh, so many people connected to these families in different ways, including people from our own church here. And it's fair to say for the nation as a whole, it just feels, you'd probably agree this week, like there's been a bit of a black cloud over the whole country. And just that mood of grieving and mourning for this seemingly needless loss of life. And at a time like this, there are a whole lot of questions that emerge and begin to be asked and answered in various ways. There are really uh, two sets of questions that start to come out. There's a set of questions around the immediate events of an event like this. Uh, what happened? Who was responsible? Um, uh, you know, inquiries are launched, questions are asked, investigations are undertaken, and all of that is going on, and no doubt there'll be answers in due time. And then there's a second set of questions that comes up, um, more fundamental questions, I guess, questions like, where was God in all of this? And how can you possibly reconcile an event like this with the idea of a good and loving and gracious God? Uh, if you've seen the media coverage this week, you'll know that these questions have come up at various times. And uh, on Wednesday night, I was watching the close-up program, and I think Mark Sainsbury sharpened up the question uh, when he read out a verse that was stuck on the wall of the chapel at Elam Christian College with the text of Jeremiah 29:11 on it. It's a verse that I've heard a lot over this week. It's, it's been taken, I think, as some sort of a, a key verse in the midst of that situation. And he read this verse out. He had the principle with him. And he read out this verse that says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And he simply asked, How do you reconcile that with this incredible tragedy and devastation? And, you know, it's a fair question. It's not one that uh, we can avoid, nor should we. It's a question that Christians need to be able to give some sort of a coherent answer to. So I thought this morning we'd start there, in Jeremiah 29, 11. Uh, if you've got a Bible, uh, you can follow along with us. If not, the words will be on the screen. But to start where people have started, and to ask the same questions that uh, people have been asking this week is probably not a bad road to travel. Interestingly enough, um, even though Jeremiah 29.11 is one of the brightest and most hopeful promises in the entire Old Testament, if not the whole Bible, it comes out of a time in the nation of Israel which was arguably one of the darkest and lowest points in that nation's history. This was a time when Israel as a nation had just been conquered by a foreign nation, Babylon. Uh, the temple had been destroyed. The king had been killed and there had been tremendous loss of life throughout the nation. Parents had lost children. Brothers and sisters had lost siblings. This was a national 
travesty. In some ways, not unlike what's happened this week. And in the midst of that situation, the best and brightest of Israel are carted off into exile in a foreign land far, far away from home. And it really is a huge loss of national identity and an absolute tragedy. But yet in the midst of that situation, there begin to be, from some of the prophets and spokespeople of Israel, voices of hope and glimmers of light and rays of uh, comfort and restoration that come out. And some of the prophets, like Jeremiah, start looking toward a time when God will intervene, when God will come and will himself make right what has uh, gone horribly wrong, when God will come and put the world to rights and usher in a new uh, creation, a new age of world order and harmony and safety and peace and prosperity. And that is where these verses fit in the story. Let me read them to you in their slightly broader context in Jeremiah 29, starting at verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Just this tremendous promise of hope and restoration in the midst of an incredibly dark time. And it was these types of promises that sustained the hopes in Israel, of Israel uh, during one of the lowest points in their history. They clung to promises like these, just as people at Elam Christian College are clinging to the same verse today. And this is one of, of numerous promises along the same lines in the Old Testament. Because they are strongly Jewish promises, uh, there's a lot of imagery that often goes along with it. And one of the greatest and richest images that comes out as people look towards this better and brighter day beyond the present suffering and pain of what they were now experiencing was the image of a wedding banquet. And so Isaiah, uh, one of the prophets around Jeremiah's time, talks about God coming as a bridegroom to lay out this incredible wedding banquet for his guests, for his people. And, and there are images of new food and new wine and new clothing and God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride and he will array you with these new garments and there will be bounty and plenty for everybody. These are the images, they're all figures of speech, but they captured the imaginations of an entire nation at an incredibly dark time. And people longed for that day when the bridegroom would return, when he would come back for his people and would usher in this new world, which would be something like a great wedding feast put on for everybody to attend. And so it was that centuries later, this man from Nazareth walked on the scene and he spoke these words in Mark chapter 2, verse 19. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast? while he is with them. They cannot, so long as they have him with them. It's not one of the classic texts that people go to at times like this, but I think it speaks into the situation. Here is Jesus drawing on exactly the images of Jeremiah, exactly the images of Isaiah, and what is he saying by announcing that the bridegroom is here and that the time for fasting is over? He's announcing that that day that the nation of Israel were looking for and hoping for has arrived in and through his own presence. 
He is announcing that that day Jeremiah looked for when God would give a hope and a future to his people has now happened in and through the person of Jesus. He's describing himself as the bridegroom who comes, who has come. And now the age of fasting is over and the age of feasting has begun. Now mourning is turning to celebration and tears are turning to joy. This new creation is starting to break in. And that's fine. But what does it have to say to these parents who have lost children? It sounds a bit glib, don't you think, just to, just to quote that verse at them. And just to say, well, now Jesus has come, everything's better. Now Jesus has come, the promise of Jeremiah is answered. They have, people have a hope and a future and everything's going to be just fine. It just doesn't square with what's happening. It just doesn't square with this type of tragedy. And that's why the next words that Jesus speaks in this passage are so vital to understand. He says in verse 20, But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. I think in an immediate sense, Jesus is pointing there towards his death, the time when he would depart from people. But there's something bigger going on there. The expectations were that when God finally stepped in and put the world to rights, it would be like light and dark. There would be a flick of a switch, and in an instant, evil would be vanquished. The powers of darkness would be overthrown. Suffering and pain and turmoil and tribulation would all be completely put to an end, and there would be a new age of harmony and peace and prosperity and safety and victory for all, and it would be immediate, and it would be complete. That's what people quite seriously were expecting in first century Palestine. The old age ends, the new age starts. And Jesus says with these words, it's not quite going to be like that. God has a slightly different plan. And he draws on this image of the wedding to describe what it is. I think the modern equivalent of a wedding day actually isn't too far from the idea that Jesus is communicating here. You think of a wedding, think of the last wedding that you went to. You have a ceremony, a beautiful ceremony, maybe in a church, maybe in a park, wherever, formality and dignity. And later on you have this incredible reception where the food is all laid out for you and there is plenty for everybody, hopefully, and there is wine or sparkling grape juice or whatever there's going to be, and there is a great celebration. Everyone's in their incredible wedding clothes. But have you noticed what happens in the time between the ceremony and the reception? There is this awkward lag. There is this time when the bride and the bridegroom go off to have their photos taken, and the guests are kind of just left milling for a while. Uh, a wedding that Anna and I went to recently, it was a beautiful ceremony, and then afterwards we were standing around with some, some friends that had also attended, and we are all in you know, suits and wedding dresses and things, and we just realized, well, we have a couple of hours to kill before the ceremony started. We were looking forward to it, our stomachs were rumbling, but we found ourselves for a few hours sitting in McCafe, drinking bad coffee <laughs> and, and chewing on dry muffins. And you're sort of anticipating this reception that's coming, but it's not quite here yet. And I think that's something of the idea that Jesus is trying to communicate. When Jesus arrived and first came on the scene, the wedding ceremony took place. God did intervene and he did come and he came to fulfill the promises of Jeremiah and bring that hope and announce restoration and make a way for us to be restored with God, our Heavenly Father. But that was just the ceremony. And we long for the day when Jesus is going to return and come to claim his own and we will be with him forever and that great wedding banquet will be here finally and fully and completely and there will be no more weeping and crying and mourning and pain. But for now, we live in that wedding day lag. We live in that in-between time. The ceremonies happen, the reception isn't quite here yet. 
And so with Jesus, the new creation is broken in, but it's not here fully. And similarly, the old age has been defeated. That age of suffering and mourning, it has been defeated. It has been brought to an end, and yet it still lingers. There's a sense in which even though it's the wedding day and we're dressed in these incredible clothes and we're caught up in the spirit of the occasion, we still find ourselves in McCafe, sipping bad coffee. We still find ourselves in the real world for a period of time, groaning and longing for something more, knowing that something more is coming, but there's just this temporary awkwardness as we mill around. That's why these types of things happen. That's why the old age with its suffering and pain still lingers and still has a hold on us and still exerts a degree of control. That's why human beings can inflict unspeakable damage on one another. That's why tragedies and disasters can still take place because the new has come, but it's come in the midst of the old. And the old age is still fading. It's still passing away, but we still live in a broken and a fallen world. The reception's not quite here yet. That's why even these types of natural disasters can come because Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that even creation itself is right now groaning for its own liberation from its bondage to decay. It seems a little bit strange to think about, but even the physical environment we live in, even the ecological system, is in a sense in bondage to decay, to this natural and fallen world. Creation has come unstuck from its creator. And so rivers flood and lightning strikes, and it's not that God caused it to happen. It's that nature is groaning for its own liberation. And it's crying out just as we are. This is part of the natural world, which is why I don't believe you need to resort to saying, God caused this to happen. Was it God's will? I believe the answer is no. Decisively no. I don't believe it was God's will. Did he allow it? Yes. Did he cause it? No. God in his sovereignty has sovereignly allowed his creation a degree of autonomy which means nature has its own cause and effect mechanisms built in. It has the ability to function with autonomy, which is why these things happen. It doesn't mean it is all a direct cause of God as the first cause and the direct cause of every single event. These things happen because we live in a natural world. These things happen because nature has, just as we have, a degree of its own freedom and a degree of its own autonomy, and we live between the ages. God is still superintending human history. He is still moving it towards its inevitable and glorious end, but for now he doesn't intervene every single time. Something like this happens. He doesn't step in every single time. He allows history to take its course, knowing what the final chapter is one day going to be. So we live with the pain of that old age. We live with death, the enemy, still lingering and still exerting a control and still reminding us of our own mortality. And yet that new creation is broken in. We see, we see those glimpses of it. And it came when Jesus came. It arrived with him. You notice the words he says, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast when he is what? With them. And one of the questions people ask is, where is God? in this event? Where is God in relation to these families and those who grieve? And the answer I would take you back to is right here, those two words. He is with them. That's where God is right now. He is grieving with those families. The God we serve is an emotional God in the richest and truest sense of that word. He is emotive. He feels. You know, too often we are tied to a concept of God as the steely, removed, aloof, and indifferent deity who doesn't really give a rip about what's going on down on planet Earth. 
That's a pagan concept of God, and it doesn't square with the God we meet in the Scriptures. And frankly, words like uh, omnipotent and omnipresent, om omniscient, true as they are, often don't help. They all reinforce the idea that God's out there somewhere. But God has drawn near. God feels, God suffers, God grieves, and God right now is weeping with the families of those who have lost children in this tragedy. He is coming alongside them to heal. He is wrapping his arms around them. He is mourning with those who mourn. And he is helping to carry their burdens through this time. He's not standing aloof. He's not indifferent. He's not somewhere else. He is right beside them right now. He's comforting them. He's healing. He's speaking words of love and restoration and new life into that situation. That's the new creation breaking in. It's the greatest hallmark that we have of that new creation, that new wedding feast, the presence of Jesus through his spirit with us, even in these times. And Jesus came not just to live and not just to walk among us, he came to die. He came to experience the same thing that those seven people experienced this week, that final enemy, death. Jesus experienced it as well, and he did so to transform the very core of what death is so that it is no longer final but is the passage to new life for those who love and follow Jesus. That's how Jesus transformed death in and through his own dying. And then three days later, he rose again victoriously from the grave. And that wasn't just the resuscitation of a corpse. That wasn't just a body brought back to life. That was the beginning of new creation. That was the beginning of this new age that Jeremiah looked for, that Isaiah looked for, breaking in, even in the midst of the prison. And that man who walked out of that empty tomb that day was the prototype of what the new creation would be. He embodied in himself the hope that we now have of heaven one day. That body of fullness and life and immortality and incorruptibility. You read 1 Corinthians 15, it's all there, of what the resurrection body will one day be. And he came forward as the first installment, the down payment, the guarantee of what was to come, securing that hope that one day God would finally start the wedding reception and the party would really get started. Even though we live in this in-between time, even though we live with this lag and this awkwardness and this time of groaning and of waiting, even though we're caught, in, in a sense, between the worlds, between the ages, Jesus' resurrection secures that one day, unchangeably, inevitably, irreversibly, the new heaven and the new earth will be here. The kingdom will come in its fullness and its finality, and the old order of things will pass away, and all things will be made new. That's the hope that we have. That is the hope of heaven. It's not a vague whim. It's not a distant promise. It's not a pipe dream. It is, as Hebrews describes, an anchor for the soul. It is something that grounds us in the present and pulls our spirits forward to that day when all things are going to be made new. That is what sustains us in the present, the hope of the future. That is what we as believers have to speak into a lost and a fallen world, the unspeakable hope of resurrection with Jesus one day in heaven. It's the essence of who we are as followers of him. It's the ground of what we believe. It's the promise of new life eternal life with him. That's the fullness of new creation. That's the wedding reception, but it's not quite here yet. We still live between the ceremony and the reception. We're still caught in between. And so how then do we live wisely? 
between the times? How do we respond and interpret events like this, knowing that, we're, as Paul describes, we are those on whom the ends of the ages have come? The ages have overlapped. We've got the old age here and the new creation. We're dressed in wedding clothes and yet we're sitting in McCafe. How, how do we reconcile this? How do we deal with these situations? And Jesus here gives us another rich figure of speech to help us through this in verse 22 when he says, People do not pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. And again, this isn't just another, another clever metaphor. It's not that Jesus is saying, oh, you just didn't get the last one. Maybe if I explain it to you this way, you'll get it. Uh, if, for those who have ears to hear, again, the, the echoes are from Isaiah and Jeremiah, the promises. That wedding image from the Old Testament, wine was always the accompaniment of the great banquet that was going to go on. Wine was always that which would accompany the great harvest and, and grain and the banquet that God was going to roll out on that day. Joel talks about the hills will drip with new wine. And how God will supply you a bounty of new food and, and wine and enough for everybody to be satisfied. It was an image that described the new creation. It was an image that described the great wedding reception. And so now by Jesus coming and drawing on that metaphor, what he is saying in the first instance is that day is here. The exile is over. The return has come. The new exodus we've been talking about is coming true. The new creation's breaking in. I am the new wine, he's saying. The problem was, again, the expectations of Israel, that many people couldn't see it. He wasn't the type of Messiah people were expecting. They wanted a, a military Messiah. They wanted a political Messiah. They wanted someone who would fulfill all the nationalistic hopes and ambitions of Israel. And Jesus is saying, if that's what you want, you're going to miss what God is doing. If that's where you are, if that's the box you've got God in, you're going to miss what he's doing over here. And he uses this image of the wineskins to talk about it. Back in those days, wine was contained in these, in these animal skins, often goat skins. And as these skins got old, they'd, they'd crack and, and go dry. So if you pour new, fresh wine in, as it ferments, the old skins are going to burst, and the wine's going to be ruined, and you lose your wineskins as well. And so Jesus draws on that image and says, if you really want to be attuned to what God is doing in and through these situations, you have to shift your paradigm. You have to see this differently. We come at these situations, these tragedies, with a certain set of lenses to view what's going on, a certain set of questions. But what God prompts us to do is take his perspective on these situations and to shift what might be our old wineskins, our old way of seeing and interpreting the situation for, for new wineskins that could truly contain what it is that God is doing, to open ourselves up to receive what God is truly wanting to give us and to give those who are suffering in the midst of a tragedy like this. And I don't really think you can find a much better example of these new wineskins and new wine than what we heard coming out this week from the father of, of one of those who died, Andy Bray. And some of you know Andy. He spoke here last Father's Day, and many people in this church are connected to the Brays one way or another. He lost his daughter, Natasha. And uh, Andy, Andy really emerged as the spokesperson for the group of, of grieving parents. And if you saw the press conference on Wednesday afternoon when Andy spoke, just the amount of hope and faith and love that he was able to communicate in the midst of incredible darkness was uh, really quite remarkable. One of the things that comes across is that Andy doesn't have an axe to grind. You know, he, he's not looking to play the blame game. He's not seeking vengeance. You know, and I'm not, look, I'm not going to tell anybody how they should or shouldn't respond in that kind of situation because I'll say it is perfectly natural to be incredibly angry, to be incredibly hurt, 
to have all those doubts, to have all those questions, to shake your fist at God, that's not unhealthy and God can take it and there is nothing about us that needs to feel like these people should or shouldn't be responding in a certain way. But you see how by not seeking that, that vengeance and harboring, I guess, that bitterness, Andy and Nikki are opening themselves up to actually receive what God's wanting to pour into their lives in that situation, to actually focus on his healing and his comforting, to focus on the faith that they have, the hope that they have of, of seeing Natasha again in heaven, to be able to focus on the strengthening of their family. I think that is the new wineskins that Jesus is talking about. And it's easy to say, well, what possible new wine could God want to pour into a situation like this? What possible good could come of it? And I think, firstly, it is that healing, isn't it? It is that hope. And that restoration, that healing balm of the Spirit that God longs to pour into human hearts at a time like this. It's the pulling together of people. You see the way that school has been drawn together over the past week, that it's just brought people together and fused relationships in a way that, that little else will. And I tell you, honestly, I think one of the greatest new wine that God has poured in through this situation is an unbelievable witness to our nation an unbelievable testimony to what you have seen this week at Elam Christian College is the kingdom of God in, in the flesh. It is a local production of the kingdom of heaven, right there. And I think from now on, if you want to understand what Jesus means when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, look at that. That is Christian hope and faith and love in action with hands and feet healing and restoring and comforting and loving and seeking to draw God right into the center of that situation. It's the first time, I think, in a long time, Christians have been on the headlines in such a positive light, in tragic circumstances, but in an unbelievable light. Christians are shining this week. They are shining. And I think the ramifications of this are going to be massive. But this is the new wine that God pours in. He never wastes a hurt. Romans 8 is clear. He works in all things for the good of those who love him. He doesn't cause all things, but you better believe he's going to work in the midst of it for his glory. And we know that this wedding banquet that God has prepared is one day going to happen. Even though we're caught between the ceremony and the reception, we have that hope that one day it's going to happen. Let me just close by reading you from the book of Revelation. Chapter 19, verses 7 to 9, a picture of this new creation that we fix our eyes on. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's people. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. This is the fulfillment of Mark 2, and it's the ultimate fulfillment of Jeremiah 29, 11, when finally that great wedding banquet of the Lamb is going to be here. And you notice that the images of the Old Testament, the wine and the food and the new clothing and so on, they're all here. They're all taken up into this incredible picture of what that wedding banquet will be. A great feast, new garments to wear, and eternal uh, fellowship and communion with the God who created us. That's the hope that Andy and Nikki and these other parents and family have. That one day they will be reunited with Natasha in heaven. That they will see her again. That this is not the final word. Death has not had the victory. But one day they will see her again. One day, when this waiting and groaning and lingering is over, and we leave behind these old coffee cups 
and we exchange them for champagne flutes in the kingdom of heaven. When we leave behind these old muffins that we've been chewing on in this life and the wedding banquet is spread in front of us. On that day when mourning truly turns to rejoicing and fasting truly turns to feasting and the old order of things finally passes away and death, the final enemy, is conquered by the risen Lord Jesus Christ and we will see him face to face and be reunited with those we have lost along the way. That's the hope we have, friends. That is the most powerful thing we have to speak into this situation. It is what these parents are clinging to. It is what we all in various ways cling to. And it's that which becomes an anchor for our soul in the present life, pulling us toward that great and glorious future that God is preparing, even now, for those who love Him.